Okay, 1 John chapter 2. Would you all go there? The 1 John chapter 2. Sorry for the confusion. I'm excited to be able to teach this <clears throat> wonderful passage today. That we It is just so delightful, especially as we get into chapter 3 here. We're going to be so delighted by the Word of God. All right. <laughs> First John chapter two. Do, do you remember your teenage years? <laughs> I don't know how far back that was for you, but I, I, you might remember those days. I remember when my mom and dad would leave us for a few hours. They would go away f- out of the house and they would leave us home. They would say, hey, make sure you get some of these chores done. Here's your list. By the time we get back, make sure these things are done. Everything would be fine, going great, until you looked at the clock and you realized they are about to come home in any moment. And I have procrastinated way too long. So what do you do in that moment? You work like a crazy person. You go, you go bonkers and you, just, you, you get everything done you possibly can for that final moment. Here's the point. It changes a person when you know your parents are coming home. And there's a lesson there. Jesus told us that he would be coming back at any moment. He's going to be coming through the door. He's going to be coming here. And that ought to change some things in our life. It ought to change us. It should impact the way we live and the choices we make. It should, but it should also, this morning, give us a sense of peace. That should be a sense of peace for everybody. If you don't have peace today, when you think about his coming, then uh, I hope after today's lesson that you will have some peace about that. If there's anyone who knows how aware we should all be of, of the return of Jesus and how, how much it should be on our mind, it is the Apostle John. God gave him visions, specific visions, of our future home. John was even the one who wrote the book of Revelation. So John knew that we needed to be very attentive to the coming of Christ. So here in this letter, 1 John, he tells his flock, as, the, as a good pastor would, reminds them to, number one, be confident at the coming of Christ. So let's look at that. He's been talking about abiding in Christ in chapter 2. Abiding, just remain, just stay faithful, stay strong, abide in Christ. Because there are antichrists out there seducing, trying to seduce and deceive people. But there's another reason to abide and another reason to stay strong in Christ. And that is here in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. That when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. Abide in Christ, he's saying, because dad is about to come home. (laughs) Jesus is about to appear. And he's reminding them and us that Christ could come back at any moment. And when Jesus returns, here's the sad thing. Some people are going to be afraid of Jesus when he comes back because they never knew Jesus at all. They never were saved. They never accepted the good news of Jesus. And that's going to be a sad day for them. But that's not who John is talking to here. 
he's actually talking to believers. We know that. 1 John is all about talking to believers. And so he says to those who know Christ, some aren't going to be afraid. You may not be afraid, but you may be ashamed at his coming. You may be ashamed at his coming. Among those who know Christ, this could happen. Those that have stopped walking closely with the Lord, those who are not abiding with him, those who living worldly and unfruitful lives. They, they may have accomplished a lot of things in life. They may have gotten a lot of things done, they feel like. But I'm sure in that moment, it's going to be quite a realization when they're face to face with Jesus. And they're ashamed because they've been walking away from the Lord. The most important things aren't the important things to them anymore. John, he says, I want people to be confident here and not ashamed when that day comes. And just as a reminder for all of us, let's just remember something. Every one of us, every believer is going to stand before Jesus to give an account of what we did for him. In the New Testament, it's called the judgment seat of Christ. And that's for all believers. Now, again, this is not about our salvation. That's ha that has been taken care of on the cross. When we believe, it's a, it's a one and done deal. And Jesus has us. But this particular judgment is for believers, and it's not about our salvation. It's about how we lived our life for him. Christ is not on that day going to judge our sin. He's going to judge our good works, the good things we did. And there will be rewards, the Bible tell us, tells us, and there will be loss of rewards on that day. As the great Adrian Rogers said, our works don't lead us to heaven. They follow us to heaven. And while Jesus was here on earth, he told several parables about this, by the way, about that day that's coming, that judgment seat of Christ. You know some of the stories, some of those parables, kings and landowners who would leave on a journey and he would leave his laborers there and then he would return from his journey to see how his laborers were doing. That's what Jesus was talking about. We are those laborers and we will give an account for what God has given to us. John says, I don't want you on that day to be ashamed. I don't want you to have to hide your face. I don't want you to just, and to a certain extent, we're all going to be, feel like we shouldn't, we didn't do what we could have done. That is true. But John says, boy, from this day forward, you need to live in a way that you're not going to be ashamed. You would be confident on that day. Can you imagine how ashamed you would be if you were in the middle of sinning when Jesus returns? Oh, my. <laughs> The Bible says his return is in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he will come back. You won't have time to stop sinning. <laughs> as, as we all, many of us have heard, Pastor Mike Robinette, who will be here in about a month, he reminds us, he said, this is why I don't smoke. He says, I don't want to be inhaling when Jesus returns and have to exhale in Jesus' face. <laughs> I think about that, you know, with our anger as well. I don't want to be, I don't want Jesus to come back in the middle of a fight. I don't want Jesus to come back right when I'm having bitterness or I'm holding on to anger with somebody. Listen, we, we can't change the past. You and I cannot change what we've already done. But what about the days that are ahead? What about the days that are ahead? Can we live in a way that we could be confident in his coming and not ashamed? Let go of the bitterness that you're holding on to this morning. Let go of that. Stay away from sin. Let's not waste time listening to the seducers out there and following after that. Let's abide. And by doing that, John is saying, listen, abide so that you won't be ashamed, but you can be confident 
at the coming of Christ. Just keep abiding in Jesus, and we'll be confident then. A big part of abiding in Christ is simply just doing the right thing. Just doing the right thing, very simple. And that's what this next verse is all about. And you can write that in your notes. Be what you are, and that is righteous. Be what you are, righteous. That's the, uh, that's the sense that you would get in this next verse. A very simple verse, but a, a very profound and powerful verse. If you know that he is righteous, that is God, that is Jesus, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Now, this is not saying that everybody who does a good deed or does something right is a Christian. Good deeds, again, can never be enough to save a person. Good deeds could never uh, bring us to heaven. It's impossible. This verse is actually tied to the previous verse. It says, everyone that doeth righteousness. And that phrase right there refers to that person who is abiding in Christ that we just talked about. So if you're abiding in Christ, now every one of those people that's doing righteousness, that's abiding in Christ, uh, is born of him. It's proof that he's born of him. In other words, a person who's abiding in, in Jesus will do righteous things because he is born of a righteous God. If uh, in likeness here, what I'm talking about, likeness is proof of relationship. The day a person is born again, the day that you accepted Jesus into your life and became born again, that day you received a new nature, a brand new nature. The Bible says you are a partaker of the divine nature. You've got a whole new nature inside of you. And so God's DNA now runs through you and me when we accept Jesus. This new nature changes our lives from a disposition of sin and just always thinking about sin and going towards sin, a direction of sin, to a disposition that now there's something in me that begins to desire righteousness. I want to do right. And I actually start to feel bad when I do sin. I start to do, I feel uh, like I'm breaking someone's heart when I go and do this. Well, it's because you are born of a righteous God. You have a new desire. Philippians 2.14 says, He works in us both to will or to desire and to do his, of His good pleasure. God actually puts in us a new desire that we've never had before to please God. So here's what I'm saying, and this verse is saying, there is something wrong if someone claims to be born of God. I'm born of God, but you do not do righteousness. You do not do the right thing. You're not desiring to do the right thing and living habitually in a, in a characteristically in righteousness. Now think about this from a physical world. When somebody's born of someone else, there's going to be a family resemblance. You say, look, uh, she has her mother's eyes or he has his father's nose. Uh, Lindsay, I don't know, is Lindsay in here? My daughter, Lindsay. Oh, she's back there. Okay. She always tells me, Dad, I got your nose. <laughs> And she doesn't seem happy about that for some reason. <laughs> by the way, by the way, I've learned what to do when I first see a brand new baby. I have learned how what to say. If the baby is cute, I say, "What a beautiful baby." Amen. But if the baby is ugly, I just say, uh, "He looks just like you." <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I have never seen an ugly baby. That is true. I like all babies are cute. <laughs> uh, I didn't want to let my secrets out, but I had to. 
But that's the point here. The children of God, that, are, that is those who are born of him, you're born of God. You're a child of God. You will have a family resemblance to the person you're born from. That is God. He is righteous. So automatically, you're going to begin to want to do righteous things. And if, if that's not the case, and you're not doing righteous things, then there's a problem. And so, really, like I'm saying, there are no ugly Christians. <laughs> there aren't. A true Christian doeth righteousness. Now, here's one thing to remember, though. We will not perfect righteousness here. I'm not talking about being perfect. Perfect. I'm not talking about being sinless. I'm talking about sinning less. Until we're in heaven, once we're in heaven, then we can, we can, be, we can have perfect righteousness. But until then, we just practice righteousness. Because we're born of God. Now John begins to elaborate on this idea of being born of God in the next few verses. And these, this is maybe some of the most beautiful, ver- this next verse to me is maybe one of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture. It's like John is having a little hallelujah moment as he basks in the thought of those words that I am born of God. I am born of God. Look at this next verse. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. What an incredible verse. Here I think is what God wants us to remember. First thing is remember, first of all, just remember the privileges of being a Christian here in these next three verses. You need to think about this. You need to behold it. And the first one really is what we are. And what are we? We're a child of God, he says here. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God or the children of God. Now look what that says about our privileges. Behold, behold what manner of love. He wants us to behold it. This means to look at it, to study it intently. It's a, it's a huge benefit. It's a huge benefit to the Christian to take a good, intense look at the love of God. It has the power, to, to know the love of God has the power to change the way that we look at everything. Your life can go from dark to bright in three seconds if you really look intently on the love of God for you. How big is this love? I'm going to share this beautiful Scottish poetic paraphrase of this verse, these two verses here, verse 1 and 2. Somebody put it into a poem. It's beautiful. Behold, the amazing gift of love the Father hath bestowed on us the sinful sons of men to call us sons of God. Concealed as yet this honor lies by this dark world unknown, a world that knew not when he came, even God's eternal Son. High is the rank we now possess, but higher we shall rise. Though what we shall hereafter be is hid from our mortal eyes. Our souls we know when he appears shall bear his image bright. For all his glory, full disclosed, shall open to our sight. A hope so great and so divine may trials well endure and purge the soul from sense and sin as Christ himself is pure. It's beautiful. Look at this verse again. Behold, behold, what manner of love 
the Father hath bestowed upon us. What manner? That word, that is referring in Greek to a high quality or the vast quantity. The Greek word actually is literal meaning of from what country or from what nation or tribe. What manner? It's like you're confused. It's foreign. It's like you've come across something you've never seen before. You know, after Jesus calmed the storm in the boat, that wonderful story, Jesus is on the boat with his disciples and he says, peace, be still. What did they say? What did the disciples say in there? They said, what manner of man is this? It's the same Greek word. What kind of person is this that the winds and the seas would obey him? And this is what John is saying. What manner of love? So when we talk about God's love, we're saying God's love has no comparison. There is nothing that we can, it's foreign to anything that we see down here on earth. There's no kind of love that even comes close. Did, did you hear about that, that uh, 79-year-old man who just went to beauty school? It was in the news because his wife is going blind and he wanted to be able to do her hair and her makeup for her in these aging years. Brought tears to my eyes. What love, behold what manner of love that is. But that's nothing compared to God's love. I've made this comparison before. As a human, I might consider giving my son to die if I knew that all the people of the world could be saved. I might. But as a human, I would never give my son to die for all the grasshoppers in the world. And here's the point that I'm making with that. In Isaiah, uh, God says that this earth, it's like filled with grasshoppers. Men are like grasshoppers on the earth. The contrast between a grasshopper and a man is similar to the contrast of God and man. God is so far above us. He doesn't have to love us. There's so many of us. He just made us. He makes people all the time. He doesn't have to show his love for us. And he certainly doesn't have to call us his son. And he certainly didn't have to love us enough to die for us. And then this love, it says, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Bestowed has the idea of a one-side giving. He's not looking for anything in return. It's just a love that just gives. God has initiated this love. He's the initiator. Not because we did something, but just simply because he's good. 1 John 4.10 and just to, we'll be come across that here in a few weeks. But herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins or the covering for our sins. Then John states the reason that this love is so unbelievable in 1 John 3, 1 there. Look what he says. He says that we should be called the sons of God. In some ways, to me, that this kind of love seems unnecessary. This is elaborate. This is, he goes far beyond what he really needed to do. This love is much more than we ever could have asked. Imagine I go and go on the streets to a homeless camp, and I go to a homeless person, and I want to help them. And I say, sir, I want to help you. And I'm going to take you to this rehab facility. I'm going to pay for this rehab facility. After you go through this rehab, I'm going to be checking up on you, and I'm going to pay for you to get an education after, after that. A full education, whatever you need. And I'm going to help you get a job. And I'm going to do all of this. And I'm going to make sure you're fed and have all your needs met all throughout that whole time. Just because I care for you. That's it. 
I don't expect anything in return. I'm just, just because I care for you. Now, you would all say, wow, that's a really nice thing to do. And that's tremendous love. But let me ask you a question. How much more now, if I brought that person into my home, if I adopted this person, and I let him have access to every one of the things that I have, and then I write him as the full beneficiary of my will, I'll give you everything that I have. This is how John wants us to see the love of God. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons or the children of God. We're in his family. This is far beyond any love that we could see or uh, feel anywhere. Behold what manner of love. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. There, he says, you poor people that love me, you sick people, you unknown, obscure people without any talent. I have published it before heaven and earth and made the angels know it that you are my children and I am not ashamed of you. I glory in the fact that I have taken you for my sons and daughters. It's not because we deserve it. It's not because we have something really to offer. It's simply because God loves us. And why are some people so slow to believe in that God loves them? Somebody has given three reasons. I'll say them quickly. Sometimes it's pride. We think that it, we we think that we have to prove that God's that we're worthy of the love before we receive God's love. Sometimes number two, it's unbelief. We can't we can't just trust the love of God. Uh, maybe we see something hurt, somebody hurting or pain in life, whatever, but we just can't trust that God would, would really, truly love. And then sometimes, for some, it just takes time. You need to understand this. You need to read the word. And I promise, I, I promise, if you keep digging into the word, you will believe. You'll have faith that God is a God of love, and he loves you. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I hope you know that God loves you today. But here's something important. Although it's wonderful to be a child of God and to be loved by God, to be entered in and to be brought into his family, there is a price that we have to pay here. And that's what it says in 1 John at the end of this verse here. The, just as the world didn't accept Jesus, they won't accept his children. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Because of our dad, because of our God, we are strangers to this world. Or at least we should be. Listen, if the world is loving us and there is no pushback ever, then we need to ask why. Because our nature should actually lead to some hostility. It's possible that sometimes we could become too much like the world and, and no longer like our Father. As, as Christians, we should expect hostility. They killed Jesus, and it's not going to be much different for his children. So don't get offended when you're mistreated. Don't. Don't get offended. Get excited. I heard about a guy this week. He was trying to, he's, as, as a believer, he's speaking out for the Lord, but he's also speaking against the treatment of Christians in China. And he's a popular uh, minister, and so China now has put him on their on their hate list or whatever it is. It's an official list that you, we hate you. And you know, if China hates you, watch out. But, uh, but he wrote then afterwards, I saw him write, he said, this is a wonderful privilege. I'm, I'm glad we're messing with them. 
so much that they would say that about us. We are going to be strangers to the world, so don't get offended, get excited, and don't worry because we have a better ending. As a child of God, the best is always yet to come for the Christian. We're just, we're, we're doing what we can do for the Lord here, but soon we'll be with the King of Kings. And that's what John talks about next. We, we be what we shall be. Let's, let's just bask in the privilege of being a Christian, what we are and then what we shall be. Here's what he says in verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So he says, now we are the sons or children of God. We got that. Our present standing is plain, and it's sure, and it's wonderful to be assured of that. I hope you are. You're a child of God. You're going to heaven. But what does that mean for our future, going to heaven? What does that even mean? And John says, well, it doth not yet appear, or it hasn't quite all been revealed what we shall be, what we're all going to be like in heaven, what it's all really going to be like for us. Though our present standing is playing the full details of our future, haven't yet been fully revealed. In fact, we haven't even scratched the surface of our future in heaven and what we will be like. And, but John says we do know this. We don't know all. We don't know the, what's going to happen or what we shall be. But we do know this. We will be like him. We shall be like him. It doesn't say we'll be identical to him. It doesn't say we'll be little Jesuses or gods running around. But it does say we will be like him. So a quick soteriology lesson. That's the study of salvation. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are saved, are saved. You've been justified. That's, a, that's the theological word. You've been justified, and that's a once and for all thing. But also, you are being saved currently. That is sanctification. God is sanctifying you. God's working right now to make you better than you were yesterday. And God is doing this work, and that's a part of the cleansing that he does in his salvation work. So you are saved. That's a one-and-done deal. You're going to heaven. You are being saved each and every day. He's cleansing you. But then also, you will be saved. And the, the, the word for that, the theological word for that, is glorification. There is coming a day when we'll be glorified, when you will be without sin altogether, without even the presence of sin in your life. And we'll be in heaven. That's the final stage. In heaven, we drop the presence of sin and we become like Christ. We will have a glorified body like Christ's glorified body. It's a new body that's fit for a brand new home. It's a body that's fit for an eternal home, not like these bodies that are only fit for temporary use only. And thank the Lord, we'll have a nice better body there, right? Amen. We will still have personhood. And we will, I believe, will still be recognizable. And one of the big reasons I believe that is you see Jesus' glorified body, and he still had personhood, and he still was recognizable. But also, Jesus talked about Abraham going into Abraham's bosom. Abraham had still had his name in heaven. He was recognizable. He was still a person. He still had personhood. You may not have the same body, but you'd be the same person, and you'll be recognizable. So yes, we are children of God, and we will often be mistreated 
like Jesus was here on this earth. But in heaven, we get all the privileges and all the glories of being a child of the king. The Bible says everything in heaven, one of the scriptures is everything there will become new. All will become new. Everything will become new. So many ways I've not been the person that I want to be. So many ways. As I look back and I just kind of lead up to this day, I, I think about, as I was studying this even, thinking about all the things that I wish I would have done better. And as a husband, I wish I would have done better. As a father, I wish, I don't know how many times, I wish I would have done better. And as a Christian, certainly, there are so many things I have failed to do. I have failed to do what I should do for the Lord. Constantly, I, I, I don't know about you, but there's that feeling inside that, oh God, I am an unprofitable servant, truly. And I, I know that from this day forward, I have to keep working at it and keep going after it, keep loving people and loving Jesus. But the beautiful thing that God is saying when he talks about heaven, there is coming a day when everything will be new. Everything will be new. I will be like him. I don't have to worry about sin anymore. I don't have to worry about making all those mistakes anymore. It's all going to be made new. I will be like him. So how does God then want us to live in light of all of this information, all of these wonderful things that he's done, that putting us into his family and giving us a home in heaven? How does he want us to live right now? And that's what we see next is what we must do. And that's in verse three. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You know, John keeps coming back to this. The Apostle Paul kept coming back to this. If you're saved, if you're pure, if you've been purified by Jesus spiritually, then live it. That ought to be the daily uh, practical reality of our life, not just inside, but it, it needs to come outside. If you have this hope, then, then be pure even as he is pure. All these theological truths we talk about should lead to a practical change in our life, should lead to a practical side of our life. In this verse, the point is this. You are positionally pure before Christ. So go live pure lives. Go live pure lives. And as we close, let me just say this. If we come week after week to church, you're studying your Bible, you know all there is to know, you have great knowledge of the scriptures, but it doesn't affect the purity of our lives, then there is something wrong. We've missed something along the way. This is not just a, another cerebral uh, practice. This is not just something in our brain, something we're just messing around here. No, this is a, this is a way of life. This is what God wants for us, each and every one of us. God's never satisfied with just a bunch of know-it-alls. What a shame if that beggar, that, uh, that homeless person I talked about earlier, would get all that love and all that kindness and be brought into that family and all that goodness from his benefactor, 
and then just go and live every, the way he wanted. Steal things, take things, and then live any way that he wanted. What a, what a horrible, horrible way to treat the love of God. So let's do what we can to have pure lives because we are pure in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you.